City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. See. Okay, City Limits back on air. I'm Kevin Healy. Uh, we've got Emma Warren in the studio this morning and Mark, Mark Allen, isn't Mark Allen? That's right. Who's uh, going to be talking about permaculture and all sorts of things. And uh, we've got uh, Michael Vessio. Vessio? Uh, <laughs> pressing buttons. Yes, you do. Yes, we do. <laughs> pressing buttons for us. And thanks, Mike. You've stepped in because poor old Corey has called in sick this morning. Oh. I spoke to her last night or, you know, yeah, sometime late yesterday and... She was enthusiastic at that stage, so obviously she'd been hit with something overnight. Totally. Well, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to listening to your program. (laughs) Well, say that at the end of it. (laughs) This is City Limits after all. Look, look, we'll kick off our usual way. We've actually got two different pots of tea, so I want people... You've poured yours. Well, when you pull the next one, put it up to the mic, because we have to have people have to hear the tea being poured. There we go. Now, that's right. There we are. Did you want a cup of... Michael, oh, you've I'm got good. one. You've got one, Michael. Yeah, you got one? <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, because it could have been two sounds. But anyway, when you pour your next one, uh, Mark well, and sure Emma, care. make we'll sure you, yeah, you get it up to the mic and people yeah. can hear it. Um, look, a couple of government appointments recently I thought worth talking about. And, well, perhaps, Emma, because it is Energy Day, you just announce what Mark, when we get round to Mark a little sh- shortly, just what he's going to be talking about. Okay. He so, can probably tell us himself, but you yeah, tell us. Um, okay, so Mark Allen is on the show today. Um he runs a group called Planning um, Permaculture... Permaculture... Population, and, Permaculture and Planning. Sorry, That's wrong, right. wrong order. It's easy to make the mistakes. <laughs> I make the mistakes sometimes too, so... Yeah. I was just prioritising in the order that I find most important. Well, that's, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's great. People can prioritise it according yeah. to what's important yeah, to them. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we'll get round to that. Yeah. And in fact, I've found a book in the law. It was handed to me. It, was, it came to the studio and it was given me to review called The Great Climate Robbery. Will you call up with that one? It's come out just in the last couple of weeks. I haven't, no. And it's about the impact of food growth on, on climate change and mm. argues that, in fact, uh, world agriculture and the big world agribusinesses are the biggest contributors to climate change and um, we need to get very simple. So it, it relates very much to what you're going to talk about, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we'll get we'll quote a bit of that later in the show. I'll show how brilliant I am. Um, look, these three appointments I thought worth talking about. Kate, Kate Carnell, who, of course, has recently been head of the Australian Chamber of Commerce or the spokesperson for, the paid spokesperson for profits, um, she's now been appointed by the government as the small business ombudsman. She's an ombudsman, mm-hmm. but that, they assure me that isn't sexist because it's Swedish or something. Um, but anyway, Kate's going to do that, and business is, is absolutely wrapped that Kate's going to be speaking for them. And it struck me that, uh, and, they, and they say it's wonderful the government appointed someone who knows so much about small business and business, etc., etc. And it struck me that they, are they likely to appoint, say, a prominent union official as... Uh, the ombudsman for workers and unions, do you think? Is that, is that a possibility? No. What do you reckon? Anyone? Mm. Michael, you got any thoughts on that? No, no, no. <laughs> Michael just cut his throat. <laughs> the, the, the very thought of it. <laughs> that, that was, uh, that's great radio when you tell what someone just did, but that's terrific. Now, the other one this week I thought really worth looking at was uh, Philip Ruddy quit his, after 43 years of his bum on the um, plush seats in Parliament, 
and he'll leave with a massive pension, of course, after 43 years and being a minister at several times. And now he's going to become our spokesperson around the world on human rights. Now, this uh, not only goes to the same as Joe Hockey, you come out, get your pension, and then you get this highly paid job. But the thought of 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 this man, Philip Ruddick, mm. being spokesperson on human rights, this is a former minister for concentration camps, mm. razor wire, etc., mm. who introduced the whole thing about sending people offshore and his own daughter at the time denounced him as being totally inhuman about the whole thing. Um, and now he's going to be promoting Australia's attitude to human rights, oh which is God. in itself terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> Very uh, terrifying. Yes, yes. This world uh, is bizarre. It is. Well, they yeah. appointed a bloke from the Institute of Public Affairs to the Human Rights Commission, as I suppose you can do anything. Um, and, of course... Um, there's that one year old Philip, and of course overnight um, I wasn't listed here, but overnight the, the some some world parliamentary body announced the the, the greatest minister in the world is Greg Hunt. <laughs> yeah, it was announced overnight. Greg Hunt is the greatest, and I thought my only thought was if Greg Hunt is the greatest minister in the world. The state of parliamentary democracy is in deep despair. It's in deep trouble, isn't it? I mean, well, we all know it's it's, it's a fake anyway, a parliamentary democracy. But uh, yes, if he's the best we've got, as he as he proceeds to destroy the Barrier Reef and pre- perhaps promoting coal mines, gets you that. I don't know. Uh, the other appointment you this you'll love this one particularly, Emma. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm sorry, Corey isn't here to be able to comment on this, but I'm sure she'll comment from her sick bed if she's listening, which probably isn't because she knows what the show's about. But um, uh, you'll be pleased to know that the, the person being talked about replacing Elizabeth Broderick, who I think I, I thought as a bloke anyway, seemed to be doing a very good job as uh, commissioner for, for uh, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll be pleased to know who's been suggested as a replacement. Who? Peter Credlin. Oh, <laughs> yeah. a dude. Man, yeah. yeah. Mm. No, no, Peter. Peter's the one who was the Prime Minister's um, chief of staff with oh, an A. Oh, okay. Peter with an oh, A on him. Yeah, you uh-huh. made the same mistake Tony Abbott pointed out a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Peter. Peter's been made. He's uh, likely to become sex discrimination. And recently, it was announced, by the way, that the the cost, the redundancy cost of all that staff of Abbott in terms of the changeover was three point three million to the public purse in redundancy payments. To those who left, so, she, so she's got part of the three point three, but now she's going to get a job. Well, she want not necessarily, but she's being touted as one of the main candidates, which is interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Peter's up there, yeah. And now, also, given that you know the role of women in this society and the way that someone like Rupert Murdoch, who just loves women, I mean, marries them all the time, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the Herald Sun page, you know, right hand news page, most of the page a picture of a woman sitting on a racing car with a flag, so already promoting the Grand Prix. I haven't seen any promotions for May Day or Labor Day yet, but they'll turn... Mm. Oh, no, Labor Day is Moomba Day, I keep forgetting. Um, in fact, it's probably the same weekend as this. But anyway, um, she's sitting on the car, and this is really... When you talk about in-depth news, you understand why things like big rallies and things can't get into the Herald Sun, because this really is hard-hitting. Britt Davis has been revved up. Isn't that a clever phrase? Oh. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yes. Revved up by the announcement today that she will be the ambassador for the 2016 Formula One mm. Australia Grand Prix. The event will be a family affair. Isn't that beautiful? With Davis joining her boyfriend. He's got a boyfriend. Mm. I don't have a boyfriend. Geelong <laughs> AFL captain Joel Selwyn and his brother Scott, who were announced as joint AFL ambassadors last month. So it's getting bigger. 
Davis, who started dating Selwyn in January last year, I thought that was an important piece of information. Oh, yes. That one, it's critical, isn't important it? Important fact. Said she was excited to be involved in the race. Well, she probably wasn't going to say, Jesus, I feel awful about it. <laughs> I love the sport and I love the noise. Oh. <laughs> wow, so do the neighbours. Formula One engines are actually going to be 25% louder this year, so I think our whole bodies will be trembling, she oh. said. The Grand Prix, and it tells you when it's on and more information. Isn't that wonderful? Just so that's what we need. That, oh, that's big news. Yeah, big, big, big news. So I thought that's, you know, that explains when you think, well, you've got some item you think's important <laughs> or some rally you thought was important that doesn't actually get a mention there. Well, that's why, because they've got more important yeah. news, including this one. Priorities. This one. And I, th- I can understand this one. Mariah Carey has yet to tell her children she is engaged to James Packer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, I thought, well, you know, she probably, I can understand that because you would try and keep it from people, wouldn't you? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) if you were engaged to Jane Packer, you'd you'd certainly want to keep it quiet. And is it her third marriage? I think it's it's their third for both, isn't it? Third for both. Because remember last week she said they wanted it to be humble. Oh, yes, with the And she flashed a 35 million or it was engagement ring, yeah. (laughs) Very humble. Getting humble off to a big start, as we said. and um, look, we'll get we'll move on shortly. But mm. the the other one, I I've got a few other items here. But but one here I thought interesting. The Herald Sun uh, had a big article about welfare fraud, and then all the letters the next day in the top section where they run the hot topic were all attacking these welfare bludgers, etc., etc., etc. Now a few weeks ago, when the government announced the hundreds of companies that pay absolutely no tax whatever. Mm. I don't recall the hot topic running riot uh, egged on by the Herald Sun and by Rupert Murdoch. No. Um, no. no. Can anyone remember that? I, I'm, you might be able to fill me and I might have got it wrong, but if I anyone... Think, no? um, Apple, I think, was on the news recently mm. for dodging taxes. Yes, they, yeah. Yeah. Yes, they very much... Uh, yeah. They, 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 they make a very strong argument, though, that their contributions otherwise to the world as such that they don't <laughs> need to pay tax. So, oh. uh, yes, they, they, they create jobs, for instance. <laughs> I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang yeah. on, this is me having a sip of tea. <laughs> mm. There we are. That's me having a sip of tea. Yes, very yeah, good. Very nice. You've got to have more sips. To to, yeah, now here we are. Going to pour a bit okay, more. Okay, yep. Yeah, yep, hold ready. it up up to the mic. There yep. you go. That's right. Have you got ordinary tea today? Uh, Not my Earl Chinese Grey, tea. Earl Grey, I yeah. think. Mine is white tea today. Um, in the US, uh, there's been there's been a system running for years with the Teachers Association. That you that members can people can join or not join, but if you join, it costs you about a grand a year or something. Um, if you don't join, you still have to pay about six hundred to because of the you, you're, you're paying for the services provided, like like discussions on wages, like um, you know all the all the things collective bargaining and all the things unions do. So it's deemed fair, and courts have deemed it fair in the past in America that non-union members can opt out, but they have to pay a fee uh, as a service. And and here I've always argued, because there's a strong argument here in recent years by conservatives that people have a... They argue the right not to join a union, never the right to join a union, and they make it harder and harder to join. But I always argue that if they argue your right not to join, when unions then say, well, you should at least pay us a fee when we get something for you, they scream and yell that the unions are being outrageous, they're bullying it. And I always feel, well, if, if that's the case, why can't we walk into one of their stores, for instance, say, look, I want that product, but I have no intention of paying for mm. it. I mean, mm. It's exactly the same thing. Isn't yeah. it? 
Yeah. And they probably wouldn't be all that wrapped in that. <laughs> no. And they probably wouldn't let you do it. You'd, they'd land, you'd land before a court for, for theft, whereas if you're a non-unionist, you land, you land before the court if you attack the non-unionist for being a non-unionist. Or call them a scab in certain situations. That's now illegal too, apparently. Anyway, in America, this has happened, but the conservative judges have just wiped it off. Um, they've... Um, They've supported a challenge by a number of uh, non-union teachers who oppose this rule, and justices right well names them. It doesn't matter. Um, they said that they um, th- that this was not uh, allowable anymore. It was illegal now to charge this fee, and the points made that this could crush unions because so you know it does take away a hell of a lot of bloody money off them. Mm, definitely. Um, and Roberts and Kennedy, two of the um, two of the judges, appeared unsympathetic to the California Teachers Association's argument that non-members would become free riders if not required to pay the fees to fund collective bargaining activities. The union basically is making these teachers compelled riders for issues on which they strongly disagree, Kennedy said. And they go on to say several justices hit it at the difficulties of separating out political issues in a way that would not, because they say one of the things is that the money, these 600, shouldn't be used for political purposes. Mm-hmm. And they say one of the difficulties is separating out political issues in a way that would not infringe upon the free speech rights under the US Constitution of non-members who disagree with the union. The problem is that everything that is collectively bargained with the government is within the political sphere, almost by definition, one of them said, Scalia. Mm. So there you are. Uh, meanwhile, back home... Um, a woman, a 75-year-old woman, retired woman, Elaine Gray, who spent 20 years working for Spotless, or where Spotless now is, um, doing the Flemington race course in Australian Grand Prix over 10 years, was sent a bill for $12.54 for being overpaid. Um, <laughs> she, Spotless a cleaning company? Yes, and, all, yeah. and catering and all and sorts catering, of things. Yeah. In fact, they won the catering for the AFL when the head of Spotless was also president of the AFL, Ron mm-hmm. Evans. But he did point out that he went out of the room and they made the decision, so there was no conflict of interest in case you worry about it. <laughs> um, but anyway... Um, yeah, Spotless uh, sent this bill. She paid it, it was over Christmas, mm. and then she got a solicitor's demand bill and, and all sorts of threats. And she had to wait months, wait a, at least a few weeks for, for everyone to go back to work before she could prove she had paid it. Now, we've pointed out before that there's all sorts of stories about workers being underpaid, and it's always, according to the companies, it was inadvertent. Mm. But we've never seen anyone inadvertently overpaid. overpaid. Well, here we go, 1254. <laughs> uh, but it turns out, that the people who worked at the race course in Grand Prix never got any penalty rates for all those years. So, mm. in fact, they owed her $605 in back pay, mm. which they've now had a payer. Another woman got um, much, much more because she worked for them for much longer, but she also got a bill for a few dollars and thought it was a hell of a joke, but then started getting more and more demanding, threatening letters. Um, but in fact, she was uh, she was underpaid eighteen hundred, and they've been forced to pay her that. But there's lots and lots of people. But the argument is that unless you go to them and know you've been underpaid, they're not informing people. So you know it's the old story. Uh, but again, we see that. But on the other hand, and this is this is wonderful news. Yes, this is great news. Seven Eleven has appointed a specialist investigator to make sure they don't 
underpay workers, etc. Because oh. yeah, because the, well, the, we'll trust them, well, won't we? Well, we do because they. <laughs> well, the company knew nothing about it, of course. Um, <laughs> it would probe any suspected serious breaches of workplace obligations. I would have thought the word "serious" becomes pretty relevant as to what he's going to look at. You know, underpaying a worker for say twelve months by a few thousand dollars might be considered as minor. And don't some workers have to pay a small portion of their wage to their boss? Well, that they were doing that. That was part of the trick. Yeah, you um, the bosses were demanding back, and also they were they were giving you um, they were they were paying you half what was appearing on your wage slip because that you know meant you could stay under what they you know the 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 limit for students etc. Overseas students etc. But they were ripping you off, of course, enormously. so they're going to do that, and they um, they say that the appointment of the investigator adds an additional layer to 7-Eleven's compliance protocols, which, as we know in the past, have worked spectacularly, <laughs> which include store audits, enhanced payroll, timesheet and rostering procedures. They include refresh training and education for franchisees and their employees. I'm not sure why the employees need to be trained. They're aware they're getting ripped off. Um, but, and 7-Eleven does not condone the failure, etc. Well, we know all that, don't we? They don't condone it. It just, just happens in every one of their stores. Um, so that's what there are a few of the thoughts for yep. the day. Yeah. Should we take Great. a quick break and come back and then Sounds we'll good to going. me. Yeah. Cool. All right. Okay. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so I'm going to introduce Mark Allen. Thank you for coming on this morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, it's really great. Um, and it's good timing because on Sunday you are doing um, speaking at the Sustainability Living Festival. I am, yes. Yep. Yes, my first time at the SLF, so <laughs> yep. it should be interesting. So that's at midday on yep. Sunday. Um at the Birabong Ma, so yep. yeah, under the gum. Yep, yeah, yeah. And yeah. so your background is a ex-town um, planner, I am. which is a similar background to me. Yes. And, um, you've also studied permaculture as well? I have. I've taken a, a deep interest in permaculture. Yeah. And uh, it was actually meeting David Holmgren on a train. Um, oh, really? Yeah, that's got me to, to really cement the two the yeah. two ideas together yeah. and think you, about permaculture-based planning. Yeah. Definitely. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your background and how you kind of came from being a kind of a planner to making this change of, you know, wanting to incorporate more permaculture sure. kind of principles into planning? Sure, yeah, and absolutely, yeah. I, well, that journey for you? Yeah, well, I originally studied planning because I wanted yep. to do something for the environment yep. um, and I thought that planning would be a good way in. Um, yeah because I've always had an interest in land use. Yeah. So I did a, a degree in planning in Adelaide, and it was a really good, it was a really good course. There were mm. really progressive lecturers, and I got a lot from it. But when I joined the profession, I got disillusioned pretty quickly yeah. and um, <clears throat> thought that I could change the system from within, but actually um, it was obviously going to be uh, very, very difficult to do that. Um, so I, I ended up leaving the profession and, and working in other areas. I worked yeah. for Oxfam and I worked for the um, Perth International Arts Festival. Yeah. But all the time trying to find a way of how I can apply my planning knowledge and everything I've learnt in a way that can help the environment in a positive way. Um, moving to Melbourne helped because it, 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 it sort of brought me you know, into contact with lots and lots of progressive mm. people, uh, groups like Doing It Ourselves and, and, and groups like that. And, and obviously there's a big sort of permaculture movement here. Mm. And, um, and so it was in the end, as I say, I met David Holmgren. I was chatting to him. And then I thought, well, what can I do? And I thought, well, the best thing I can do is to, is to probably try and start doing workshops. Mm. I was quite nervous. So I, I decided um, at Confest, I went to Confest oh, last yeah. year. And I thought, well, that's a good place to practice doing workshops. 
because you know it's a very forgiving crowd. Yeah, yeah. You know, so um, so I did one at Confest, and and it, it, there was a lot of interest, mm. you know, and lots of people at the end wanted to talk to me. So I thought, well, I I'm going to continue to do this, yeah. and I set up the Facebook group, and so I've been doing workshops ever since, and, um, and it's just grown from there. Mm. It's in in the last year, it's just it's just grown. Mm. So yeah, it's it's that's sort of where I'm at now. Yeah. Um. And you were saying before that um. Like land use planning is often overlooked when people talk about climate change. Absolutely, um, and yeah. how it's really, really important. And I completely agree with you. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, how you see planning addressing kind of climate sure. change issues? Absolutely. You know, obviously we're in this critical decade now where we've really got to try and get on top of of climate change. And there's been some amazing campaigns coming out, especially the divestment campaign and and things like that, which have been really, really, really progressive and good. But I do feel that the whole planning aspect has been overlooked. And I think that the way we plan our communities and our settlements is fundamental Mm. to creating a low carbon lifestyle, Um, you know, if, if we continue the way we are by just having endless suburban sprawl, most of the good work that a lot of people are doing is going to be uh, marginalised somewhat by the long-term impacts, the long-term carbon impacts mm. of, of the town planning that's, that's currently going on now. Mm. And I'm not just talking about urban sprawl as well. I'm talking about the, the high-rise, a lot of the high-rise yeah. that's going up in Melbourne. Yeah. It's very, very poor quality. Um, uh, Professor Michael Buxton said just before Christmas at a talk I went to that a lot of this high-rise has um, a shelf life of possibly only 40 years. Oh, wow. So we've got all of this embodied yeah, the, the energy. Slums the, the, future, really, the slums of the future, really. The slums of the future. So we, 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 we're really, really creating all the time, we're creating this town planning crisis, which is every, every day that goes by, we're reducing our capacity in Melbourne to create a sustainable, low-carbon lifestyle. And I just think that we need to emphasise that issue that we really get a, get on top of this, and that mm. is fundamental, not just to obviously preventing climate change, but to so much else as well. Mm. Mm. Well, there's the obvious point also, but as you expand, you encroach on the ecology. Um, Absolutely. Know, the, the western northern grasslands, which is not much left of them, but once left, they want to build on as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, so we're, we're encroaching on the ecology. We're also encroaching on our food bowl as well, which mm. is another huge issue, um, you know, which is obviously going to mean we're not only are we losing good good soil, good agricultural mm. capacity, but we'll also be increasing our food miles as well as mm. we have to get food further and further from the metropolitan area. Yeah. Um, so, you know, reducing food miles is fundamental to, mm. to, to preventing climate change. So. And so many studies have been done showing that most of our fresh fruit and vegetables and eggs actually comes from that, like, peri-urban... Absolutely. Like, the area the, around cities, like that's where so that's, much of our food is coming from. That's right. A huge amount. Exactly, mm. yeah. And it's so important to, to be mm. able to source fresh food uh, mm. locally. Um, and we're losing, we're, you know, the, the figures, of, I don't actually have the statistics on me, but for Sydney and Melbourne, it's pretty alarming mm. um, about just how much our um, food bowl and mm. our biodiversity is being eroded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. On that point, I was thinking last week we should recommend to some of the big boardrooms around the place that they dash down to Coles and Woolworths and buy some prepackaged lettuce and so on. Oh, definitely. Yes, that's right. This is the problem, you see. You you live in certain areas of Melbourne where that's that's the only lettuce you can get is the prepackaged stuff because they've created um, developments that are based around Westfield supermarkets, you know. 
And, and with the nature of suburban sprawl as such is that you, you don't create those communities where you can get things like farmers' markets and mm. encourage... And we have Vic Mark on your doorstep as we do in Aruba. And we're still, that's right, yeah. we're very yeah. lucky here, yeah. but yeah, yeah, so... Mm. Yeah, so it's an important issue, yeah. yeah. Um, so what are some of your ideas if, you know, we want to stop building low-density sprawl on the mm. edges of cities and this kind of glut of bad infield development mm. happening in the inner city, um, yeah. you know, which is often used as an argument for, like, the housing crisis. Mm. Um, what do you suggest as, you know, how planning should be progressing? Well, planning needs to be taken out of the hands of developers and corporations. Mm. It needs to be taken out of the hands of, of negative gearers and mm. and all of that kind of thing. You see a lot of you see a lot of the high rise in Melbourne. They, they it's there's a there's a bit of greenwash go, going mm. on, and unfortunately, quite a, a lot of I won't you know a lot of high profile environmental uh, environmentalists have, have fallen for it somewhat mm. um, because this 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 belief that high rise will stop suburban sprawl. I mean, mm. it, it can, but it's complicated. Mm. And there are lots and lots of checks and balances that have to be in place if you use that mantra, and they're just not being put in place in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So most of the high-rise that's being built in Melbourne around railway stations, it's like, oh, well, we're doing this just to prevent suburban sprawl, but mm. most of it is actually built for investors. Mm, yeah. And most of it is sort of one-bedroomed or studio apartments, mm. and, of course, it's extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's not... It's not aiming at the demographic who would who would otherwise live on the urban fringe. Mm. Exactly. In studio apartments, if you own a cat, don't try swinging it. <laughs> exactly. Don't yeah. try swinging it. Certainly, don't start have. Don't try having a family or anything like that, oh, or, or, or all of the things that people on the urban fringe. You know, a lot of people on the urban fringe want to do. Yeah. So it's this kind of. Uh, this kind of belief that you know that we've we've actually got to start breaking that down and say, well, hang on, yet yeah, um, high rise can play a role in, in mm. preventing suburban sprawl, but it, it's complicated and mm. it's, it's part of the solution. It's not a magic bullet solution. Mm. Although, Mark, there is that development uh, on uh, next to Anstey Station on the upfield line, there, yeah. over that, that, that green building there, yeah. which uh, is environmentally yeah. pretty, pretty decent. And they, the is. council banned parking spaces in there, although yeah. I know people who live there who have cars, so it's a bit of a problem, I think. But yes. nonetheless, those sort of developments right next to ample public transport, right next to train, mm. tram 100 yards away, mm. Um, they're the sort of things that should be encouraged, aren't they? Yeah, um, up to a point, definitely. Um, uh, up to a point, there's some problem there, isn't there? Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> up, up, up to a point. I mean, we, I, we, we definitely want to be encouraging um, that kind of standard and that kind of quality. Mm. But also, we, we need to ensure that there's some affordability there as well, so, unless there yeah. is a, um, yeah. an affordable housing component. Um, again, it still doesn't necessarily deal deal with the the issue of suburban sprawl and all of the other issues that that it's theoretically trying yeah. to prevent. Well, housing affordability is a totally you know different area in many ways. I mean, that's right; those places don't cater for that at all. Well, that's right. But we have housing affordability has to be part of the matrix if we want to to really look at this holistically about how we can create sustainable mm. sort of resilient communities. Um, so, so yeah, uh, co-housing is is a fantastic example um, I, of of some of the mm. the housing affordability schemes that are happening, and we need to be encouraged. You asked earlier what mm. what we should be doing. I think co-housing should be uh, a major a major part of that, and there needs to be a substantial component of thinking outside the box and thinking about this kind of thing, so that we create communities that are diverse and has people from a whole range of social economic backgrounds. Um, 
And also, there is a point where you can actually build too many apartments, even if they're the, the, the greenest apartments that mm. you can possibly mm. think of. Mm. Sure. There comes a point where you can have too many around mm. railway stations, um, you know, for a number of reasons. Um, one is, of course, that we've got to get the, the, the public transport infrastructure needs to be able to keep up. Mm. And we need to make sure that in- infrastructure uh, is improved at the rate that the population is increasing or, or else we, we end up with a lot of problems. Like we're getting now where trains in Melbourne are, are over capacity mm-hmm. um, and, and getting more and more crowded. Um, and also we don't want to, if we focus too much on, on origins and not on des- destinations, um, people are going to, you know, if, if, if you, if it's or if it's only apartments and those apartments mm. start pushing out businesses, mm. commercial enterprises, then people aren't going to have any reason to get on the train to go to places mm. because it's all going to be apartments mm. surrounded mm. by car parks. So I, ironically, you've got all these apartments and parking spaces around railway stations and you're losing a lot of the small businesses that get displaced by that. Mm. So you've got to get that balance. Like I, I play squash in Keon Park. I get the train. It's wonderful. But that squash centre is, is zoned to be demolished and replaced with apartments in, in, yes. in, because it's mm. near a railway station. So mm. I'll have yeah. no reason to get on the train. I'll still have to drive or, or, or catch a lift to go to squash because people are living close to the railway mm. station. So you see what I mean? So this is, this yeah. is another issue we've got to look at as mm. well. Yeah, of course. You got, you're, t- you're saying there are problems with too many high rises. There are also problems with urban expansion for yes. all the reasons we talked about. That's right. But therefore, are we talking about having to reduce the population or how do we cater for the growing population mm. that they're predicting? Well, that's right. You see, the thing is with Australia is it's a very, very large country. So on paper, you'd say, well, we can, we can take a very large growing population very, very quickly. But we're actually, um, in terms of where people live, we're actually a nation of, of just a few urban con- conurbations. We're not mm. really a nation of boundless plains when it, when it uh, comes to, to, to where people can live. If, if we want to, to move out of relying upon c- cities like Sydney and Melbourne and the Sunshine Coast and, and places like that to absorb population growth, then we have to start looking at increasing our regional town yeah, net network, definitely. which includes mm. um, building high-speed rail, um, and, and, that's, and that's fine if, if that's the path we want to go down. The argument that I make, though, is that we, we actually have to get that in place and we have to have that fully costed and in place before we rapidly increase the population because otherwise it's not going to happen. It's just going to be suburban sprawl. So my, my, my policy is, is that my policy, my philosophy is, <laughs> policy, I sound like a politician. politician. <laughs> <laughs> give, give me 10 years, I'll be saying that. No, no, not really. Um, so my, my philosophy is, is that the, 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 the level of, of how sustainable population growth is is dependent upon the planning system that absorbs that. And right now, the planning system is not equipped to handle large amounts of population growth in a sustainable mm. way, mm. And which is going to lead to all kinds of problems whereby you get the social isolation and, and, and longer commutes and all of these things. And this, the tragic thing is, is that the, the gentrification that's being caused by a lot of the high rise that's being built, the high density, is pushing um, people out of communities like um, Footscray, for example. There's plans mm. in Footscray mm. to, to build a lot of high-rise there. So we're seeing a lot of gen- gentrification, mm. which is pushing more and more people on lower incomes, ironically, mm. 
through building high-rises, well, pushing more people out. You mentioned the Puchko. There's a, there's a public, a publicly owned site near the station that the government's announced it's about to flog off to a private developer. Yeah. Now, this would seem to me to be an ideal spot to put public housing when it there's would. a scream for such things. Yeah. It's so much public land of that sort that's ends right. up in developers' hands, it does. and it should be should be kept in public hands. Exactly. Definitely. That's that's why we need a, a we need to completely re re-examine. We've got to take planning out of the neoliberal paradigm. Neoliberalism does not does not do planning well. It doesn't do much well, to be frank, but yeah. we've got to sort of... Name one thing it does do well. I can't. No, okay, go No, I'm not... <laughs> 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 so, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, so that's that's the big issue there. Um, we've really got to... to, to but it's not it's, it's capitalism generally, not just a neoliberals part. You know, a yeah. form of capitalism, or a, just a development yeah. of capitalism. Yeah. But, but in fact, pla- you base planners, you'd know, planning laws and building laws are designed for developers in the big end of town. Yeah. So, you know, ca- even mean, councils that try to do something mm. get thwarted quite often mm. because mm. that you know they go to VCAT and then they say, well, the law says this, so mm. it's okay for the developer to do whatever yeah. the developer wants to do. Exactly. And what yeah. was the argument you made between like um, the GDP and like the construction industry, mm. you know, that... Oh, yes. Well, you know, at the moment, um, population growth in Australia is very GDP. It's, it's all about boosting GDP. And so you have a, a deliberate rate, or you have a deliberate um, high population growth policy to boost GDP and to keep sort of fueling the sort of development industry that mm. we have, which is which is creating the problems. So population growth really needs to be decoupled from GDP and mm. it needs to go back to what it was before, which is population growth that happens for a whole range of social reasons and, and political reasons rather than just deliberately increasing the population purely for GDP purposes um, because it's, it's not sustainable. I mean, Melbourne's population is increasing by 100,000 a year. Mm. And even... Um, even with the the most progressive planning policies in place, it's very, very difficult to create sustainable communities and maintain sustainable communities at that rate of growth. It's so much easier just to build large developments on greenfield sites. Mm. I mean, if you look at something like the Fisherman's Bend development, mm. which is, you know, a highly prized, touted kind of um, urban renewal brownfield site development in Melbourne, um, and it's it's very large and it's it's been on the books for a long time but that will only house less than one year's worth of population growth in Mm. in melbourne um a lot of progressive planners are saying we should be focusing more on the middle suburbs as areas Mm. to to um subdivide because there's Mm. a lot of infrastructure out there a lot of the middle suburbs are catered for by public transport there's a lot of open space Mm. out there there are a lot of houses in the middle suburbs that built in the post-war houses pretty energy inefficient a lot of people aren't bothering to retrofit those. So, um, but again, that takes time. If you want to increase the density of mi- middle suburbs, that that takes time. That's mm. a considered form of planning because obviously people live there, and and you can't. It's not as quick as building a new estate mm. on. Yeah. So, a slower, more meaningful uh, increase in population will create, you know, um, more resilient communities and will allow us to make those more considered um, planning decisions. Mm.
Yeah. We, we talked, I mean, you talk about you need to change lifestyle and make it more simple, etc. in many ways. Mm. Um, and that's been talked about in climate change generally, although it's, it's argued, you know, that life would be a lot better in many ways also if we did all that stuff. Mm. But people have been talking about that for ages. But nonetheless, those who control what happens now still control what happens now. Mm. Uh, how do we get to the point where people are prepared to accept those changes that make life better for the planet itself and then all of us? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the answer's the problem, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it really does. And this is, the, this is the, the fundamental issue. I sort of run these workshops and people say, well, okay, what do we do? It's yeah, what like, do we do? Yeah, what do we do? Yeah, what's like, next? Um, that is the difficult bit. I mean, I, I suppose the, the key thing is to raise awareness as much as possible and get people thinking about these things so that, um, you know, as we do... And when the, par- the paradigm's going to change eventually, whether or not whether we like it or not, we can't keep going the way we are. My, my attitude is is that well, let's try and do this gracefully and start changing the paradigm now, um, and and that way um, it's going to be a more graceful transition rather than the desperation that comes as, as systems start to collapse and fail. So I think raising awareness as much as possible. But there are all kinds of things happening in Melbourne where people are starting to sort of. Um, trying trying to sort of adapt to this new paradigm. You've got um, like the gnomes, for example. They I don't know if the gnomes have been discussed much. No, here. not really. So the gnome, I'm, it's the, a farming um, collective. Yes, urban farming. Urban farming mm. collective. So this is see, basically um, as well as preserving the 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 the, the, the food bowl of Melbourne. There's also a lot of potential within Melbourne to grow food. And, and do permaculture. And there are still a lot of, despite the, the big subdivision push, there are still a lot of houses mm. with large backyards. Mm. But there are a lot of people who don't have the time or the energy to, to really get the most out of these back, backyards. Mm. But at the same time, there are also a lot of people in Melbourne who um, don't have a backyard. Um, mm. And, of course, that's increasing all the time. They're, they're either living in apartments or they're living in, in, in small sort of houses. So... So this is an opportunity for for people who who don't have access to their own backyard to work in other people's gardens, mm. and um, and that way and share the produce. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a great way of and getting everybody to to access gardening, mm. irrespective yeah. of where they live, and use um, underutilized land as well that is just sitting yeah. like empty at the moment. Have, Absolutely. Have yeah. you read um, David Holmgren's Retrofitting the Suburbs? I have. Have you been influenced by by that stuff? I have indeed. Yes, and this is another thing that I, I, I say. I see the thing is a population growth. Is at the moment you see population growth is being used as a way of trying to force the kind of unsustainable development that we have now. In a different kind of society, uh, we could house population growth, maybe not at the same rate as that mm. it is now. I, I think that it's very hard to sustainably um, absorb population growth at this rate, but certainly um, in a in a different kind of society, we could absorb um, population growth without worrying about too much more suburban sprawl and that kind of thing because uh, there are so many empty houses in Melbourne, mm. so many um, vacant bedrooms. And, you know, if you want to get really, really radical, you know, and you start looking at what David Holmgren says, the outer suburbs can eventually 
be converted into really awesome permaculture communities. You can start mm. pulling fences down, mm. um, growing food out there, and and increasing the density of the outer suburbs by by you know you could even convert uh, double garages into yeah. into studios. You can rip the <laughs> rip the door off, put glass yeah. fronts on, and start to sort of retrofit. So. You know, I think that's a really like great option for lots of people, like a little kind of granny flat kind yeah. of out the back, like more variety and housing choice. I Absolutely. think it's so important. The, the thing is, is we're not, it's unlikely that we're going to be in a position anytime soon to build new regional towns. Um, I can't see where the mm. money's going to come from. Mm. And I can't see in a post, you know, in a post sort of capitalist society, how we're going to be able to do that quickly. So I think that the, 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 the response is really going to be retrofitting mm. what we have now mm. yeah. and actually looking at the outer suburbs as a, as a resource. Mm. Not, not that that's yeah. a justification for increasing suburban sprawl. It's basically what, what, what's the best we can make out of this. Yeah. You mentioned the fast train project earlier, the mm. possibility of that, but that would probably just expand existing towns along the routes, would it not? You wouldn't well, that. there'd have to be checks and balances in place. Um, again, I don't know how they would afford it. Um, already, you know, state government of billions of dollars in debt just trying to keep up with existing infrastructure debt um, and even the, like, the state government here have you struggled could, to come up with the money. They could try taxing the rich for a start. Well, they could. Well, taxing the rich would be a very good start yeah. and, and taxing those companies that you talked about earlier that are actually yeah. evading tax altogether. That's right. But yeah, there's certainly you could, uh, you'd have to have sort of green belts around the town so that you don't create suburban sprawl in their own, uh, and towns in their own right. So you would be looking at creating new sort of urban village style settlements along the mm. railway line mm. um, and making sure that there was a, a zone around them mm. <clears throat> because it's very important as well that people have access to nature and this is another problem with suburban sprawl ironically if you live in the inner suburbs of melbourne you you have more access to nature with things like the merry creek and 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 um and, and series and places like that than you do in the outer suburbs so another advantage of building regional towns or small regional towns is that um, there's always that ability to walk into nature and mm. if there's not much nature out there, it's an opportunity for people to, to, to plant and, and regenerate the bush. Mm. So you can, you know, in, a, in an ideal situation, a, a modest amount of population growth can be done um, in a way that improves the environment, you know. Mm. Yeah. Why don't we take a break, play something or other, and we'll come back and continue the discussion. We're, we're talking to Mark Owen, who's... Um, with PP and P's. PPP, that's right. Which you don't do on your shrubs, by the way. Okay. Good morning. You are listening to City Limits on 3CR. Um, I'm with Kevin Healy, myself, and Mark Allen is our guest today. Um, that song was um, September Long by Leah Flanagan. Um, so we're going to get back to um, talking to Mark Allen um, from the group Population Planning and Permaculture. Um, perhaps would you like to tell us a little bit about um, permaculture and how kind of that fits into your wider view of planning. Sure, sure. Well, when I first started learning about permaculture, mm. it was um, very much at a kind of a, a gardening growing food mm. sort of scale. Mm. And I became interested in, in how that can be integrated into, into communities. So, yeah. you know, so if, if everyone's doing permaculture, how can you <clears throat> sort of broaden that? in a way so that you have food swaps and trades and that mm. kind of thing so that and, and David Holmgren talks about you know pulling fences down between mm. houses and the retrofitting the suburbs mm. and 
creating that integration. And in fact, permaculture started off meaning permanent agriculture, but now it actually mm. means um, permanent culture. So um, it's, it's very important at a community level and at a town planning level for that reason. And, um, and by, by looking at that, so the permaculture is as much about creating walkable communities. Mm. Um, it's, it's as much about having alternatives to having to drive, um, access, equitable access for ev- everyone to gardening, whether it's a community garden or a collective like the gnomes. Yes. And, um, and to have that resilience um, because mm. resilience in a in a in a in a micro scale is very important, but resilience at a community scale is yeah. important too, and so that's that's why um, permaculture principles in in planning are so important mm. because it makes them truly sustainable. Yeah, and and that's why you know like having a diversity of different types of housing in a community is mm. important too, because mm. that way people can upsize and downsize depending on where they are in their life without yeah. having to leave that community. So that adds to that resilience. Definitely. So you'd have townhouses, mm. you'd have some lower density houses for people who want to do, do large scale permaculture in their mm. garden. You'd have some apartment living style. So it's creating that diversity. And the more sort of the more options you create in a community, the more the more resilience there is. So if yeah. if it's walkable, um, then that that adds to it. Mm. If there's diversity of different housing types, that adds to it. If you can walk into nature, that adds mm. to it. If there's a community garden, the more boxes you tick, the more well, it's an oversimplification, but it is a good guide. But mm. the more boxes you tick, generally speaking, the more sustainable or potentially yeah. sustainable a settlement is. And also thinking about things like water in urban environments, like getting better at water sensitive urban design and absolutely, yeah, water like collecting water and having, you know, harvesting it for a yeah. community use. Like there's there's so much more that. Definitely. planning could be doing definitely mm. oh yeah exactly mm. yeah that's very very true on that point in this book i've mentioned earlier um big businessmen around the world are saying now that water is essentially um one of the you know the, well, some a lot of people quote it that water is going to be the next big bloody investment that mm. uh, mm. it's going to be you know, more expensive and... than coal etc <laughs> yeah. mm. but at the moment in parts of the world where they where big companies can get in and get the water free uh, and put in their own dams, etc. For instance, apparently the Nile now is is absolutely salty at the bottom end. There's no, you know, it, it's been destroyed by these people. Um, and you've got companies like Nestle, etc., all buying up water across Africa and Asia. Mm. Um, and that this is destroying the this is destroying the local na- na- natural agriculture yep. and the soil, of course. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, that's right. So, so that's 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 what, another reason why permaculture and regenerative farming is, is so important because it, it looks after the soil um, and um, and looks at, at ways of harvesting and and using water wisely you know and uh, and in in Melbourne obviously we could, if everyone had a rainwater tank um, and everyone uh, knew um, about proper mulching techniques and that kind of thing we could do a lot here um, with just the resources we have with the roofs mm. of our houses, you yeah. know. So. As an aside, by the way, because people mightn't be aware of it, when you buy San Pellegrino, I don't, but when you buy San Pellegrino water, 
uh, which you think you're buying a nice Italian water, mm. or Perrier, and you pay a lot more because of the name Perrier. Mm. So you think, wow, you know, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm cool. <laughs> um, Pure Life, they're all owned by Nestle. Oh. Um, and in fact, Nestle has been sued in some countries for the way it's destroyed waterways to get it. And, mm. uh, and in fact, um, th- those waters are being sourced by a company that is destroying places around the world mm. in order to get that water to you. So I just thought I'd mention that in passing. Yeah, yeah. It's an important point. This is an important point, yeah. which is why we, we have to become uh, much, much more reliant upon ourselves to do these things. We, we, we've got to stop relying upon other people and big mm. corporations and start... Or developers. And developers. We've, mm. we've really got to start looking at what can we do in our community to, to, to deal with these issues. And we've got mm. to become more self-empowered. Mm. Um, and that's why it's really, really important to to talk about these issues and to, to look at projects and schemes in Melbourne and, and see how you can contribute. Because there's a lot out there if you mm. look for it, you know. Mm. Something about... Go on, gonna, oh, so yeah. if people want to get involved in your group, or mm. what, um, what should they do? Well, <clears throat> basically my group at the moment is a Facebook page and workshops. Yeah. Um, so they can join the Facebook... The Facebook group is called Population Permaculture and Planning. Mm-hmm. So... Um, they can join that there's a lot of conversation and discussion on there um and um it's also keeps people up to date with when workshops are taking Mm. place and that kind of thing um obviously come along to the workshops there's also a group called doing it ourselves um which is an umbrella group for a Mm. whole range of different organizations in melbourne that are, are trying to sort of um adapt to a new paradigm where where we do actually you know lead a permaculture lifestyle mm. um so i i certainly recommend checking doing on ourselves out there's a yeah. newsletter and and from there you can learn about all of these awesome things that are going on like the gnomes collective that i was talking yeah, about before yeah. and people can hear you at the conference of the sustainability they can yes you can come along to my workshop it's at 12 p.m uh, on sunday um under the gum and I'll be also launching a zine as well, which I've co-written uh, with um, the president of Victoria First, uh, Michael Bayliss. Um, we'll be launching a zine called Why We Need to Talk About Pop- Population. And it talks about the, how population fits in with planning and all of those things. Yeah, a few years ago, um, City Limits a couple of times went, um, in fact, we, we went live from the Sustainability Festival. Oh. Yeah. Um, and they, after a couple of times, they never asked us back. So I think that probably reflected something. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> It was that uh, end of story. <laughs> Look, we, um, just before we go, a couple of things. I just want to raise one other question in, in terms of this being our energy day, and we've talked about it, what we talked about relates to that I very much. I thought this was our sustainability day. Well, it's sustainable energy, oh, all those things. Yeah, it's anything okay. to do with those things. It's all that stuff. And, yep. You know, yeah, yeah. But you'll be pleased to know. Uh, um, European officials knew that Volkswagen diesels fell short of pollution limits years before the company mm. became engulfed, etc. The Commission, the European Union's executive branch, performed road tests on emissions from seven diesel cars starting in 07, but did not reveal what cars or manufacturers had been involved in the tests, etc. Internal documents obtained show that they all failed. The tests were not intended to identify car makers violating mm. the rules. Tested by the Joint Research Centre, a branch of the European Commission, uh, it must be noted that vehicles used for research cannot, etc. But it turns out that a VW Golf that met regulatory standards when tested in the lab exceeded those limits by nearly three times when tested on the road. But that was markedly better than a car made by Renault, the Clio, whose emissions exceeded regulatory limits by as much as seven times. 
A Fiat Bravo and a Fiat Punto and a BMW 120D were among the other diesels tested and had emissions ranging from two to four times higher, etc. So they're all doing it. They're all doing um, it. And stuff, and of course, they argue that diesel's somehow better than using petrol. But we, as we mentioned on this, we keep saying on this program, diesel emissions are the most dangerous of all. The um, the particulates are so small they they break through the lung with you know, and and in fact, are, are most carcinogens. So um, oh, okay, I didn't um, know that. Yeah, so diesel really, and and of course, freeways are built for trucks that mm. use diesel. Mm. So in fact, but it is the most dangerous of them all. Mm. Um, just thought I'd mention that in passing. Right. It's now fifty eight. We're going to have to wind up. Um, so look, you think, well, look, see what, yeah. what we'll do, you, you, <laughs> and next week's housing, by the way, so okay, we've got yeah. Yeah, people coming. Excellent. Um, you thank Mark and ask Mark, cause he's the guest to thank Michael for going out of his way to help us today. Okay. And Michael can now go back and do what he was really here <laughs> okay, for. Okay, so we're got thanking in a circle. Thank you for coming on. It was really excellent. Um, and I hope some people can attend your workshop on Sunday. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you so much to Michael as well for going out of your way today. Uh, <laughs> very, very cute. Well, it's actually, you know what? You said I was going to like regret it, but I did not regret <laughs> sitting in on your program. It was amazing. So oh, thank well, you. See you for next week. Then. <laughs> <laughs> you probably will. <laughs> All right. So uh, be back for City Limits uh, next week um, at uh, nine to ten o'clock. Yep, on Wednesday, and on we'll Wednesdays. be talking housing. Beautiful. See you next week. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.